0: Yale Podcast Network. Welcome to the Moonlighters, shining a light on topics in internal medicine.
1: With John and Gabby. That was good. Thanks. Yeah, so I'm John, a resident at the Yale Internal Medicine. I'm Gabby,
0: I'm a resident at Yale in Internal Medicine. Jump right in.
1: Welcome to the the Moonlighters. Gabby, what are we uh, what are we talking about today?
0: Today we are talking about cirrhosis, and to do that, we have Dr. Guadalupe Garcia tao here as our guest. She is a Yale University professor of medicine, and she's a chief of digestive diseases at the VA Connecticut Healthcare System. She also does tons of research, and this research focuses on cirrhosis and its many complications.
1: I know, we are so lucky to have her on the show today. She's created some of the fundamental pillars of diagnosis of decompensated cirrhosis. She uh, This includes uh, the absolute PMN cutoff of 250 cells per high-powered field to diagnose SBP. Um, I mean, it's just crazy to think about that. You know, every time we check that, you know, that's uh, all all because of Dr. Garcia-Sao. Well, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you, John and Gabby. It's my pleasure to be here, really.
1: So if you want to you know talk a little bit about The learning objectives, Gabby, to kind of introduce those.
0: Yeah, so for our objectives for today's talk, um, we want to discuss the definition of cirrhosis, the main etiologies, and then what qualifies as decompensated cirrhosis. Also, outline the general approach to a patient with um, a suspected new diagnosis of cirrhosis, and then basic uh, initial management of some complications, including GI bleed, hepatic encephalopathy, ascites, and HRS. Uh, So, let's get started. We wanted to start off with um, a case to kind of focus this discussion. So our patient is a 57-year-old man who hasn't seen a doc in years, and he presents to the ER with two weeks of yellow eyes and three days of abdominal distension. So you, as the resident, go down to the ED to admit the patient. What history do you want to know? So, Dr. Garcia-Tzau, if you could just start off by telling us um, basically what you look for when taking a history for a patient who might have a new diagnosis of cirrhosis.
2: So just the fact that the patient has ascites and jaundice, the first thing in your mind, obviously, the patient could have cancer, could have any other thing, but one of the main things is you suspect the patient may have liver disease just because the patient is jaundiced. And so the main thing you want to confirm is in fact that your diagnosis is correct. And I have to say that just that that cirrhosis is divided in two stages, an asymptomatic stage that is compensated cirrhosis where the patient can look like any of us. You cannot tell. You have to be very, you know, have a high degree of suspicion and it's very difficult to diagnose. You may end up having to do a liver biopsy, whereas a patient that's decompensated like the patient you're presenting is relatively easy to diagnose. So what are the things that you see? You see a patient that has jaundice or not. They may have bitemporal muscle wasting. Their arms will be very skinny. That's part of the, the of the muscle hypotrophy. Then you will be looking for palmar erythema, which is a part where the, the palms are flat, the periphery of the palm is red, and the tips of the fingers are red. So it's very distinct. And then you're looking for spiders as well, what we call telangiectasis, which are nothing but dilated arterial. So they look like a little spider, but when you put your finger in the center of that spider, the the lesion entirely blanches out. And when you let go, it fills up from the center to the periphery. Sometimes when they're huge, you can actually see them pulsate. These are part of the vasodilatation that these patients have so you, you you look at them, then you go and you examine, obviously, for asterixis. So, so you want to know if they have encephalopathy. You have them stretch their arms out, bend their wrists really as far as they can and to keep an active position, and you see whether there's flapping or not. Then you go and look for gynecomastia, which is something that also happens in, in, in the male with cirrhosis. You look at the belly, and in the belly you can actually see collateral circulation, which indicates that there's portal hypertension. You would see the caput medusa, which is basically collaterals that come from the umbilicus and radiate out into the periphery and the flow is is centrifugal so it's going from the umbilicus out so if you do if you put your fingers and, and you blanch the vessel you can see where the direction of the flow is coming from Then you confirm the presence of a site, which you already have suspected by looking at the patient, and you can do it just doing the fluid wave, or you can do shifting dullness where you percuss the patient first when he's lying flat, and then when he's lying to one side, and you can figure out how the dullness changes. Um, Sometimes in a patient with a site, it's difficult to palpate the organs, but sometimes you you can still feel a spleen, and you can feel a left lobe of the liver, even in the compensated cirrhosis, you can feel sometimes the left lobe of the liver. And this is because in cirrhosis, the liver is trying to regenerate, and it regenerates in a very haphazard, abnormal way so that the right lobe shrinks and the left lobe gets really big, and the left lobe is in the epigastrium. So when you go in, you feel something hard, and when you have ascites, you can sort of ballot the left lobe, and you can feel something hard coming back to your fingers, and then you know. You know if you have all of these symptoms, you know 100 million percent that the patient has cirrhosis.
0: Wow, thank you so much for that explanation. So it seems like a lot of the um, signs that you're recognizing on physical exam can be really obvious at times.
2: Correct. In fact, you know, the decompensated cirrhosis in Mexico, we would call that the bus diagnosis of cirrhosis. And we made a lot. You (laughs) look at the bus, oh, that guy has cirrhosis. Mm. Of course, the compensated patient is very difficult. Sometimes you may find some spiders, you may find a a big left lobe, the spleen that is big, but it's much more subtle. It's asymptomatic. So in this patient issue, should be fairly easy to make the diagnosis. Just okay. just by looking at the patient. Okay.
0: Um, just for learning purposes, if, say, this patient didn't have all of these signs of cirrhosis and it was much less obvious, it mm-hmm. was not a bust diagnosis right. in this case, um, and more so you just had a high clinical suspicion um, but weren't exactly sure, are there certain questions you might ask when taking a history from the patient that might um, totally. make you... Yeah.
2: So, so this you were telling me about signs. So now the thing that I would ask the patient is, first of all, if we're suspecting that he may have cirrhosis and he looks like he has cirrhosis, you would ask them about risk factors. Who does the patient drink, which I would suspect this patient, so how much alcohol does he drink? When did he start with the jaundice? You know, when did he start with the abdominal girth that's increasing? Does he have any risk factors? IV drug use for hepatitis B? Does he have? Has he had any? Has he been told that he has liver disease? And perhaps the main question was: the, Do you know that you have liver disease? And if so, you know what is the cause of your liver disease? And since when have you been jaundiced? And since when did the belly go up? That, that those would be. It depends on how much the patient knows. If the the patient has not seen a doctor. It's obviously because he felt fine. So you're going to say, "You know, when did this start, and what happened right before this happened? Did you drink a lot? Did you get in contact?" I mean, it's if he has a it's unlikely that it's going to be an acute hepatitis. It's more likely chronic. So you have to ask for things in the past. Have you had your labs tests? Do you know? Do you know that you've been told that you've had infected with any kind of viruses, etc.? And of course. The up-and-coming cause for for cirrhosis is non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, so you have to ask them, are you diabetic, are you hypertensive, Uh, you know, in the past. Okay.
0: All right. Um, so we're seeing this patient down in the emergency department, um, and we're thinking maybe he has cirrhosis, maybe it's decompensated if he
2: has a very swollen belly. Um, and jaundice. So and genre. so the, decom- the, the, the thing that defines decompensation are clinically overt complications. So mainly ascites, variceal hemorrhage, encephalopathy, or jaundice. So when you have any of those four, you can say that this patient has decompensated cirrhosis. right? Clearly, this is in the setting of someone who has chronic liver disease. The patient is just showing up. You are thinking that this is a likely diagnosis, but he could have pancreatic cancer, for example. He had metastasis in the belly and be jaundice. jaundiced. And ha- so it, it's all in the context of, of what the patient is telling you when, when you examine and, and when you talk to the patient. If he said, oh, you know, I've been a drinker for many, many years, blah, 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 you know. Then, then you're fairly sure but then you don't only rely on on your eyes and your and of course you examine the page is full of spiders mm-hmm. and it's flapping then you're you're sure if something is missing you still have to go to the labs for example okay. so in the lab the main thing you're looking at is a low albumin That's the main thing that goes on in a chronic liver disease and a low platelet count. So those are the two main things that I would look even in a compensated cirrhosis. The albumin starts coming down, and the patient has a site, it has to be less than three, more or less. And you look at the platelet count, which indicates that there's portal hypertension, Mm -hmm. so it's a low platelet count. Those would be perhaps the—and, of course, you look at the AST and the ALT just to see, you know, what the pattern is like. But to diagnose cirrhosis, you rely on liver insufficiency, which is— a decreased albumin or an increased INR, and you look for low platelet count, which is indicative of of a portal hypertension.
0: Okay. All right. And when we're um, admitting these patients, presenting these patients on mm-hmm. rounds, we're always taught that it's really important to distinguish between whether or not the patient has compensated or decompensated yes. cirrhosis. Can you explain what the importance of making that distinction is? So it's
2: in t- they're like two different diseases. It's it's the same one, but they're different stages have different clinical characteristics. and have But mostly they have different clinical prognosis. Uh, they have, like, for example, a compensated patient as long. long as the patient remains compensated will live for more than 12 years, all right? And the main outcome that you're looking for or the main thing that you clinically want to do is prevent them from decompensating Mm -hmm. because they're very far from death. Whereas the decompensated patient, their median survival is about two years at best, one and a half to two years, meaning half of the patient will be dead yeah. in one and a half to two years. So your main goal is to make them well so so that, you know, get them better so that you can prevent mortality or get them ready for liver transplantation. So it's a decompensated patient whom you're thinking of liver transplant. You're not gonna think about that in a compensated patient. And and, and, and not only that, they, they have different predictors of death. Your goals when you do clinical trials in these patients are entirely different. So so. They're very different patients. In the compensated patient, you, you, in the very, very compensated patient, you, there may even be a possibility that if you take away the etiology of, of the disease, they may regress to non-serotic stage. This is something very new. But for us, in the decompensated patient, there is no possibility of this. Oh, okay.
0: Wow. wow that's uh,
1: that's that, really interesting. It, it seems really important. Yeah. A, yes. Yes. Um, Actually, I actually was thinking about a case I had recently um, of a patient that was, had hemochromatosis and uh, we, we had uh, imaging that showed a nodular liver and we thought, you know, this patient might have cirrhosis, but we looked at the platelets and they were normal. And I remember that like low platelets, you know, our totally. yeah, normal platelets has a good negative predictive value for cirrhosis. Um, but then we looked into the history and they had a splenectomy in the past. Totally. Is that something that you've seen before? Yes,
2: totally. So this is the, so the, nothing in medicine is hundred percent. I have to say, so I have seen patients with cirrhosis that have a totally normal platelet count, no question about it. But I always look to see if they have had splenectomy. Once they've had a splenectomy, that platelet count doesn't go down. You see, so yeah.
1: Yeah, I never even thought about it before. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was really so, interesting. Oh, yeah. So <laughs>
2: yeah, that's 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 very interesting. So yeah. you always have, for example, <clears throat> a low albumin. You know, they could be losing albumin someplace else, and now with Nash coming up, you know you may get confused because they may have proteinuria, they have chronic kidney disease, they have a, a parenchymal kidney disease. So I was look, I'm always look at the urine analysis to make sure that they're not losing protein that way because a, a decreasing albumin may be the only thing that indicates the presence of cirrhosis, But if a patient is losing protein through the urine. Then it's neither here nor there. Don't the albumin is not valuable in these patients. So you have to, like I said, that's why if, if you know people are thinking that you can do this by robots and stuff like that. No, because your mind integrates <laughs> yeah. all this information that you know. Otherwise, you would not obtain. You have to think ahead and think. You know, am I missing something and mm-hmm. so forth?
1: That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, kind of sort of similar to that topic. We, I, you know, we always I see patients sometimes who. Um, you know, we get an imaging for some other reason and they have a nodular liver uh, on CT scan or uh, ultrasound. Um, And I'm always like wondering, you know, does this patient have cirrhosis? And, you know, we talked a little bit about the labs. Um, And uh, is there anything that, you know, you know, we have FibroScan, which is a new thing uh, that's checking. And is there anything that when you look at imaging, what do, you, what do you see and that says this is cirrhosis, definitely?
2: So we have gone to the physical exam. We go to labs and what may indicate that you have cirrhosis or not. And then you rely on imaging studies. In, in Europe, for example, the ultracenarvars are the so they, and, I, and And you can tell the nodularity of the liver. If you find a nodular liver, more likely than not, the patient has cirrhosis. Especially in in the clinical context, so, but unfortunately, for example, some ultrasonographers here overread this, so they will say lobulated liver, nodular, and you don't know what they mean exactly. Sometimes it's useful to go down to X-ray and have them show you the nodules, and you can see the the the, the surface is, is entirely lumpy, bumpy. You know, this is rules in cirrhosis, almost 100%, although it depends, again, on the interpreter. Then the other thing you look for is splenomegaly. So that's why I don't do limited abdominal ultrasounds. I want to complete abdominal ultrasound because I want to see the liver nodularity. Sometimes you can see how the left lobe is bigger than the right lobe, right? remember i told you that it's all dysmorphic and then you look for the spleen it's very rare that on ultrasound you see collaterals but on cascan and mr you you ask the radiologist specifically do you see collaterals because collaterals means that there's portal hypertension if there's portal hypertension there's cirrhosis all right so so one of the the main things that happen when you have cirrhosis or the initial things that happens is increase in, in portal pressure and, and and that leads to formation of collaterals. So in a CAT scan, you see nodular liver, and collaterals, this patient has cirrhosis 100 million percent, all right? Now we use these mostly in we use fiber scan, for example, mostly in the compensated patient. In the decompensated patient we have so many elements that we don't need to do a fiber scan to, to diagnose it. The fiber scan measures liver stiffness. So as there's more scar tissue in the liver, the liver gets stiffer. So this is a device that, that uses a mechanical impulse. It, re, it, it re collects the, the data using ultrasound waves. And if the waves come back very quickly, it means that this is a stiff liver. So it gives us a number. It's measured in kilopascals. And if it's less than 5, at least in, uh, you know that the, it, it's the it's very useful in ruling out cirrhosis. So if your fibroscan scan is less than 5 kilopascals, you, this patient does not have cirrhosis. Then if there's more than there's more than 10, 15, you know, then, then, then the patient is likely to have surgery. But again, you have to take it all in the clinical context. It's just a value in itself. In the same way, just having a nodular liver doesn't tell you anything just per se. You have to always take it in the clinical context. This is If, if something comes from this lecture is that you have to see the whole page. You cannot just rely on one number or one image to make the whole diagnosis. For example, a nodular liver can come from having nodular regenerative hyperplasia, which is something that you can get from medications. You get something that you can get from vascular abnormalities and so forth. Mm. Wow. Mm.
0: Okay, awesome. Thank you. So we've gone over a lot of stuff for our patient. Turns out on his history, he was drinking for a long time. Um, We've, you know, done his physical exam, which gives us a high suspicion, his labs as well. And we've ordered a complete ultrasound of the abdomen to be uh, just for completeness sake. Um, And now we're faced with the question that often comes up with a patient with a big belly. Um, The ultrasound did show us ascites, and we're wondering whether or not we should
2: do a paracentesis. A 100 million percent you have to do a paracentesis. Any patient with New ascites, you must do a paracentesis because you you don't know. I mean, it's likely cirrhotic ascites. So the, the objective is twofold. One is to confirm that this, this ascites is really cirrhotic, right? It's coming from a cirrhotic liver and not from malignancy, right? And, and and two is to make sure that the patient is not infected. A patient that comes in jaundiced with a big belly, jaundice can be an indication of sepsis. Do you see what I'm saying? So you have to rule out infection. So you do the tap, because this is the first time you're seeing this patient, you do the tap to confirm that the patient has cirrhotic ascites and, and, and you order it's very cheap. You can do it in with very two, two, you get the serum albumin, you get the ascites albumin, and you get, you subtract the, 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 the serum minus the ascites albumin, and you get the sac, the serum ascites albumin gradient. And if it's greater than 1.1, this indicates that the is like to have cirrhosis. And then you get a total protein in the fluid, and it should be less than 2.5 for cirrhosis. And so, once you're, you're comfortable with that, you're happy, so this is cirrhotic acid, now is it infected or not, and you measure the PMN count, the poly, not the total leukocyte count, but the the neutrophil count. And if it's more than 250, the patient is likely to have an infection of, of, of the fluid. So those are the two things you must do. And even if you know the patient has cirrhosis, let's know this patient, you know him now very well. He comes in again and again, comes into the ED. The, the, the fact that the patient came into the ED may be just because he doesn't well, he or she doesn't feel well or they're confused or whatever, you have to tap that belly because it's the easiest thing to miss is as, as spontaneous bacterial pertinence. So you just have to tap them to make sure that they're not infected, all right? And tapping them also, and people don't understand, this. if there's anything horrible going on in the abdomen, let's say it's not SVP. They have diverticulitis or appendicitis or cholecystitis or any inflammatory problem in the belly, if that PMN count is normal, you have ruled out not only SBP, but any other bad thing going on in the belly, all right? So it's very good when it's negative, Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And so say you have a suspicion for SBP in this patient, right. what would giving antibiotics before a paracentesis do? Like, does that affect the yield of the results usually if the patient yes, got a dose sure. in the ED? Yeah, yeah
2: it will. I mean, okay. if you did it simultaneously, no. Okay. But but the only in this particular patient, I, uh, I haven't seen his white counter or anything else. He, I don't know <laughs> if he's febrile or not. But unless your suspicion is is good, I mean, like really strong, I would not start an antibiotic. Oh. All right, oh. I would always tap everything. So so let's say the patient comes in, he's febrile, has leukocytosis, looks toxic. You start, you tap them immediately, and start the antibiotic. Yeah. If it's one hour different is gonna not gonna affect the result. All right. So, but 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 make sure you have because the problem that we're having now is we're having all these infections due to multi drug resistant organisms is because everybody that hits the ED or even outside the ED gets an antibiotic. Mm-hmm. So now fifty percent of our patients at Yale New Haven Hospital who have SVP do not respond to the initial antibiotic wow. because they're getting multi drug resistant organisms. So, I am an enemy of, and of course, you know. It, and again, this is up to you guys. It, you have to get this sense. You have to get a sense of whether the patient... Does he seem infected when he comes in? Mm -hmm. Jaundice is a sign that a patient could be infected, but if the blood pressure is fine, the patient's not tachycardic, not febrile, no leukocytosis, you can wait. Wait, You can wait until you get everything else. If, on the other hand, the patient, the blood pressure is low, he looks toxic, he's febrile, then you. Pan culture, and then you start the antibiotic.
0: Okay, and um, so say you you didn't start the antibiotics beforehand. You do the para, uh, paracentesis. Mm-hmm. You see greater than two hundred and fifty PMNs, and then you start antibiotics. And which antibiotics? If well, you have no suspicion for multidrug resistance, that, that's the whole thing. What so he he
2: hasn't seen that doc in a million years, right? So yeah. he's community acquired for sure. Right. You start ceftriaxone. Yeah. All right. So, it, but the problem is, if if he has coming from another hospital, right? Or if he just was recently discharged from the hospital, or if, or if this event is happening with 48 hours after hospital admission, which is nosocomial, that has the highest rate of multidermis in an organism. So you cannot start with ceftriaxone. So if you have any suspicion that he was in contact or is in the hospital when this is occurring, then you have to start with broader spectrum. And at Yale, you have to do vanxocen, um, for, as as initial. There's a study actually comparing vanxosin versus carbapenem and and daptomycin in Italy, where the in Italy is different because Italy, I mean, they have such rate of multidrug resistant organism like you cannot even imagine. So in that study, they showed that 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 even sur- that the rate of of cure of, of SBP was much greater with the mer- meropenem and daptomycin oh, wow. with the vancomycin. So theoretically you you want to start with big, big guns at yale they and I think rightly so they won 't allow you to go unless they fail bank so and so but at least you should be aware that if this is a nosocomial infection or a, or or a, a healthcare-associated infection, meaning the patient has been in con, discharged recently from another hospital or from our hospital, yeah. and or has been in a nursing home or is in the hospital when this infection develops, you cannot start just with ceftriaxone.
0: Okay. All right. And how long do you typically treat for an SVP? <laughs>
2: Seven days, yeah. but it's like you neither know, so yeah. here. there's a study that's a really, really old study that compared treating them once the PMNs came down to less than 250, which was about. Four to five days versus treating them for seven days, and it was exactly the same. Oh. So theoretically, you know, one if you tap them again and again and, and it goes under 250, you can stop the antibody, theoretically, all right? Now, it's very important you'll he- read some guidelines that say that you should not retap these patients. I am a stickler for retapping these patients. Tapping mm-hmm. a patient is easier than drawing blood. So usually at 48 hours, and especially now that We have multi drug resistant organs. We want to know if the infection is resolving or Mm -hmm. not right? Yeah. I mean, so what, what is the big deal about tapping at 48 hours, just getting a little sample and sending it for a cell count? And then you'll feel much better that the cell count is coming down. You know, if it's not, then you worry that either you're not using the proper antibiotic or there's something bad going on in the bowel. Yeah. All right. So so I would always recommend to tap them in 48 hours. It, when I was recently attending, I, I saw a patient where, where they didn't do it. And I I've got a little bent out of shape, but it, it, as a matter of fact, it turned out that the patient was not responding uh, to yeah. the antibiotics. Oh, so, wow. do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, so, that's so I important. think it's, it's in this case. I want to know what is happening with the infection.
0: Yeah.
2: Wow. Um,
1: there's so much complexity to this, these these patients. It's amazing, you know. It, it's
2: it's 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 fun. I mean, it, it's it's complex, but once you understand what is going on, and it, it's I, no question about it. You, you should not be scared. Have you rotated through clad skin?
1: Yeah, that was my first rotation. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so that must have been a rough awakening. Yeah, but it anyhow, really hard. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's hard, but, it's, but, it's, but in a way, it's not that hard. Once you get the, the, the hang of it and, and, and you realize what is the next step and what you want to do, it is not that complicated. Clearly, there are complicated because these are these are sick patients. Mm-hmm, so the decomposited yeah. patient is a sick patient. And unfortunately, nothing that we do actually – other than giving them a liver transplant, improved survival. For example, if you give them diuretics, it's a symptomatic therapy. If you give them lactulose, it's a symptomatic therapy. So they're all symptomatic therapies. You know, there's very few that actually improve the survival of yes. mm-hmm. these patients.
1: Wow, all right, so, um, so our patient you know, is admitted to the floor, and um, he uh, tells you on further history that he's been having black stools for three days. Uh, You also notice that his hemoglobin um, has dropped three points from his last uh, appointment um, outpatient, and his BUN is elevated. Uh, He's also becoming increasingly confused, and on chart review, um, there's a CT scan from last year that shows possible varices, uh, esophageal varices. His vital signs are stable. Uh, What are your next steps, uh, Dr. Garcia-Sal?
2: So just a comment about varices on CAT scan. Varices, you can only call something varices if you see them through an endoscope. So, what you see on CAT scan are collaterals, which may or may not be varices. So, you may see collaterals around the esophagus, but as long as they're not protruding into the mucosa, they're not varices. So, the only way of determining whether someone has varices is doing endoscopy. The finding of collaterals indicates that the patient, in fact, has significant portal hypertension. So, yes, he is very likely to have varices. Is I'm a stickler for... Yeah, <laughs> so no, that's good. So anyhow, that's so, point, so, yeah. so, anyhow, so this is not your typical variceal bleeder. Usually, it comes in, like, much more intense, but chemoglobin has dropped. The, the, he's having melanin. Clearly, you suspect that this may be a variceal hemorrhage. So, what do you do then? Now, variceal hemorrhage depending on what child the patient is, and we haven't gone through that, having mortality that goes from 2% or less in a child A patient to 30% or more in a child C patient. So this patient with that size and John, seems to be like more into the child C patient. So you're going to have a high mortality. You want to diagnose it early and treat it early. So what, just because you suspect this, you have to start. An antibiotic. But he's already on one. I think he has SVP, So he would continue the antibiotic. But if he hadn't been, you would put them on an antibiotic. But this also reduces the risk of, of, of recurrent variceal hemorrhage and reduces mortality in these patients. You put them on noctriotide, which is the only vasoactive drug that we have to constrict the splatonic circulation and decrease portal pressure. And then and even before, before this, you obviously stabilize. He doesn't seem to be hypotensive or anything, but you have to you make sure that their volume replete. What is his hemoglobin? So hemoglobin is uh, around the low nines right now. Okay, we're fine. You don't transfuse. The guy's young. You know, you don't want to tank them up too much because they're going to rebleed. So just follow the hemoglobin, you know, make sure that it does you start transfusing when it hits about 7, all right? Then you start transfusing— Obviously, if he was 80 years old with coronary disease, you see, again, yeah, yeah. we're not robots. This yeah. is, these are just general <laughs> recommendations. You have to modify depending on who your patient is. Mm-hmm. This patient is a young guy, relatively young. You know, he seems to be bleeding, but it's not a brisk bleed. You know, I was talking about our trend that keep him on the antibiotics, not transfuse him, and then once you're sure that the patient is hemodynamically stable and everything, you call GI because they need to have an endoscopy done within the first twelve hours.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um and uh, you know just kind of bringing up something that some, sometimes comes on the uh, up on the wards um Sometimes people say that beta blockers uh, are contraindicated in patients with a history of SBP. Could you um, comment on that a little bit? So
2: let's talk about beta blockers a little. In the acute setting, like in this patient, if we think the patient is bleeding, definitely you do not want the patient on beta blockers. So let's say he had been taking beta blockers and now he comes in with melanin and you're suspecting a virus hemorrhage, you stop the beta blocker for sure because the beta blocker will blunt. The cardiac response to bleeding, so you do not want that. You stop the beta blocker. You start an a, a vasoactive drug that's going to have a more immediate effect. An IV drug that's octreotide that will have a more immediate effect in lowering portal pressure. Last time I was also attending it, so it ended up that the patient was left on the beta blocker, and I, you know, it's it's not proper to do so because you're 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 blunting the 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 the, the, the cardiac response to bleeding so you should stop the beta blockers start the um the vasoactive drug and then let's say everything goes well let's say the patient gets an endoscopy they find in fact that the varices could be a source of bleeding they ban them you continue the octreta you continue the the antibiotic and five days out everything is cool. The patient is, is stable, the hemoglobin is stable, he's hemodynamically stable, and by this time he's completed already his course for SVP. So you you, tape, you take him off the, the antibiotic, you taper him off the octreotide, and at the same time you're tapering him off the octreotide, you start the beta blocker. And this is independent whether the patient has ascites or not, or has SVP or not, okay? the There the, the, was a study that that um, was in France that showed that patients on beta blockers who had refractory ascites had a higher mortality. Then there was a second follow-up study that showed that patients that had SVP that were on beta blockers <clears throat> had a higher mortality. Since then, there have been innumerable papers that show the opposite. Not the opposite, but at least in the best case scenario, that beta blocker actually improves survival in these patients, in many of these patients, including refractory ascites and others, including one that we did at Yale New Haven Hospital, in hospitalized patients, that beta blockers have no effect, either beneficial or deleterious on survival. So what is the difference? The difference is that the papers, that sh- the studies that showed a deleterious effect used higher doses of beta blockers and had a lower mean arterial pressure between those that were on beta blockers compared to those that were off beta blockers. And there's a recently propensity matched study that showed that overall, in patients with refractory ascites, patients on beta blockers had a better survival than patients not on beta blockers. But when they divided them by the dose, that these patients received. The patients that got more than 180 milligrams a day had a poor survival than even the guys that were not on beta blockers. So it seems to be something that is dose dependent and mean arterial pressure dependent. So it makes total sense that if the patient is hypotensive, Either because, you know, you don't want these patients to be to get a decreased renal perfusion because then they'll get renal syndrome. So in the setting of a low mean arterial pressure, and we're talking systolic pressure of less than 90, you do not want the patient on beta blocks, all right? Once, let's say the patient has SVP, his miniature pressure, pressure was a little lower, you take him off the beta blocker, now the patient has recovered. His blood pressure is back to normal, you can restart them safely on the beta blocker, all right? Same for bleeding. You do not want a patient bleeding on a beta blocker, but once they stop bleeding and they're totally fine, the best treatment to prevent re-bleeding is a combination of beta blockers and ligation. And the main Key element of the combination therapy is the beta blocker. So, there's a study that we did recently in, in patients with child B and C, like this patient is, in which it, it's a meta analysis of of, of of prophylactic studies, and we divided by A and B and C. Because at that time, way back, we would lump all the patients with cirrhosis together, and now we're starting to stratify them. So, we divided A versus B and C. And then the BC patients. The combination therapy had a better survival than when they were on ligation alone. So it's never good to leave a patient who has bled on ligation alone. They have to have the beta blocker. So I would never, I would push the beta blocker as as much as I can in this patient. Okay, now, like I will say, you know, if the patient, sometimes the patient gets sick, they get more vasodilated, they cannot tolerate even the minimum dose of beta blocker without dropping their pressure, then the patient, no, you cannot you cannot use the beta blocker. But if the blood pressure is okay, you're cool. Okay. In the acute setting, if they're hypotensive, they have AKI, you can stop the beta blocker. You should stop the beta blocker.
0: Okay. All right. So back to our patient. He's taken to endoscopy. He's found to have grade three varices and a whale sign is seen. So there's no active bleeding and they ligate his varices. And he does well and he returns to the floor that night. But he remains slightly confused and you notice that he has some asterixis. So I just want to ask you, how do you conceptualize ammonia levels? When are they useful to you and uh, how do you use them clinically?
2: Yeah. So, so I think the most usefulness for ammonia is if a patient comes into the ED and the patient is gork, like he's obtunded, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the patient may or may you not have cirrhosis. Yes.
1: <laughs> I've never heard of that word. Specifically,
2: he's like, lurked patients. He's like, <laughs> he's like out, right? Uh-huh. And so you want to say, you know, is, it, is this, he looks like he may have cirrhosis, is this encephalopathy that he, that he hit his head, is this something else? Then you draw an ammonia level, and it's very, very high. It's only going to be useful if it's very, very high, and then you'll say, okay, this is probably a hepatic encephalopathy. In this particular patient, you know for sure that this is hepatic encephalopathy, mm-hmm. right? Because he has blood in the gut. Mm-hmm. Blood is nitrogen, is, is, is protein, and that is gonna be converted into ammonia. And the ammonia levels, and even if they're not high, I don't care, do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, so in this setting, the history is very clear. The patient has ascites, has cirrhosis, has an infection, has blood, and now he has a bunch of blood in his gut that is being converted into ammonia. So for sure, this is a hepatic insuffolable. I don't need an ammonia level to show me that, that this is hepatic mm-hmm. insuffolable, plus the patient is flapping, etc. So what you have to do is take that blood out, all right? So you can take it out by NMS. Mm-hmm. you have to clean the gut, or you give them lactulose just to clean the gut. And it's likely that after this happens, once the blood is gone away, he this patient may not even need lactulose later on. Now, the guidelines say that once they got encephalopathy, you have to continue them, and then it is our job as out in the outpatient setting to, to taper them off the lactulose and see if the encephalopathy recurs or not. Okay. 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 Now, some colleagues of mine follow ammonia levels. I, if the initial ammonia level I will not go crazy about, the follow-up ones are, like, entirely useless, all right? <laughs> because you go by the clinical. Yeah. If the patient's waking up, is losing the esterases, you don't need to confirm that the ammonia is back to normal. I don't care what the ammonia is as long as the patient is awake and not flapping, all right? So some people go crazy, and they oh, they have to go to normal, and they start over the patient, mm-hmm. and... and, and Laxatives is the worst enemy of the patient yeah. with cirrhosis <laughs> because adjusting the dose is, is 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 at the beginning when the patient is acute encephalopathic, you want to give them like every hour, every two hours laxatives until they start moving the ball. And then you go down and you dose the laxatives to obtain three good bowel movements a day. It's not necessary to have profuse diarrhea. Yeah for the patient to respond in fact and i see this patients that are over lactulose then start getting electrolyte abnormalities that then gives you more encephalopathy which leads them to give them more lactulose and then it becomes a vicious cycle all right so so one has to be cautious with, with with the lactulose and just try and titrate it as as best you can without giving them profuse diarrhea
0: Okay, and then when do you think about using Rifaximin?
2: Yeah, that's another thing. It's incredible. We are the only country, I think, that, that uses Rifaximin as liberally and for acute episodes of encephalopathy. In other countries, it's very regulated, and they do not use Rifaximin. Rifaximin, in the, the setting where it has worked in a randomized controlled trial that's in the New England Journal of Medicine, was in the setting of a patient that had had two episodes of encephalopathy for which there was no precipitant identifying, meaning this like like encephalopathy that's sort of endogenous, right? Mm -hmm. And then they randomized them to rifaximin or placebo, and all of them were getting lactulose as well and they wanted to see recurrent hepatic encephalopathy. So in that setting, they definitely, refraction prevented recurrent hepatic encephalopathy. No one, there's an Indian study that shows that acutely refraction makes patients with acute encephalopathy better, but this is not a very strong study. Mm-hmm. Uh, given the expense, I would think that uh, treating the, acute, I think of refraction more as a preventive than actually treating them for a pa- acute hepatic encephalopathy. Oh, okay. okay, so and. When one tries refractory, you, you usually try it in the patient who either cannot tolerate the lactulose or who has had repeated encephalopathy or at least one repeated encephalopathy on lactulose. Oh, then you okay. add the refractory. Do you see oh, that okay. should be the way it is? It's not like that. so
0: for first episode of hepatic encephalopathy, you don't need to discharge the patient on refractory. Especially
2: in the especially if it's a a, a, a precipitant induced encephalopathy, like oh, okay. in this man, mm-hmm. infection. And the bleed could clearly precipitate the encephalopathy. Once you clear those things, the patient should be fine. Does not need, may not even need lactulose. Oh, do you okay. see?
0: Yep. yep. It,
2: it's all about, on the other hand, if the patient came in out of the blue, you find nothing. And he's totally encephalopathic. And you find no bleed. You do your due diligence. He's not infected. He's not bleeding. No sedatives. No constipation. Everything fine. So this what do you do in these cases? One of the things that, that one does, especially if the patient is not that decomposed, is you look for a spleen or renal shunt. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes they have such huge shunts mm-hmm. that they're shunting ammonia from, 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 instead of going to the portal vein, that ammonia is going to, into the brain. Yeah. Yeah. because oh, through wow. the shunt. Yeah. And you can then embolize the shunt and the encephalopathy yeah. results. Oh, it's the same thing as with yeah. the TIPS. So yeah. if you have a TIPS, you, you have created the huge yeah. shunt, and mm-hmm. if the patient after TIPS is getting encephalopathy and then encephalopathy, you, make the shunt, the, the, you can make the TIPS narrower, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. In this case, sometimes sometimes we have patients that their main thing is just encephalopathy. You're saying, what? And it's again and again and again. And so then we look for a renal shunt that you can then embolize and then that fixes that problem.
0: Okay. And how would you look for that? Would that just be on an ultrasound? CAT scan. Oh, CAT No, yeah. ultrasound.
2: With contrast find. or? Oh, okay. an MR. With, with
1: contrast or no contrast? It has to oh, be with contrast. Like contrast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 All right. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Um, that's some advanced stuff right yeah. there. I never heard of that. Um, so let's continue with the case. So, um, so, you know, the patient's doing well now, ha- having two to three bowel movements per day.
2: Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And uh,
1: <laughs> um, no longer uh, cronked or what did you say earlier? Gorked. 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 Or gorked.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Close. He's totally awake. <laughs> he's totally awake. Okay, so um, so he's being put on spironolactone and Lasix uh-huh. for the ascites, Beautiful. and uh, but the abdomen remains tense. And uh, on day four, and he he wants to know uh, if we can drain some of this fluid off because he's uncomfortable. Yeah. So a couple things uh, if you could comment on. So like, when do you therapeutically tap? How much do you take off? And um, how do you use albumin?
2: So. I would find it very rare that the patient would not respond because this is, well, his first onset of ASI. So usually when it's first onset of size, they tend to respond very well to diuretics. But, but the patient is tense. They're uncomfortable. The moment the patient's uncomfortable, you should do an LVP, okay? Mm-hmm. And what we do normally is total paracentesis. You just take whatever you can out and then replace it with albumin at the rate of one to two. two the, I forgot. Two to three grams per liter of a size that you take out. All right, so, okay. so, so it's it's. And the reason you have albumin is because when you do a paracentesis without albumin, especially if it's more than five liters, you get something that's called the post-paracentesis dysfunction, which is essentially the patient gets more vasodilated, right? Okay. So then the risk of hyponatremia and kidney insufficiency gets gets better and it gets uh, it's higher. Oh, okay. So you do a paracentesis without albumin, they, they are at risk of getting kidney failure and hyponatremia. So you don't want that. It's been shown that Albumin right during the paracentesis will prevent, will make the likelihood of this syndrome much, much, much less likely. So less likely to develop renal insufficiency or hyponatremia. So now there is a new study that's going to come out in the Lancet. I wrote the editorial. It's just like cut off the presses where they gave patients with not quite refractory size, but patients who were requiring LVPS, like this guy. You know, he's not entirely responding to your diuretics, and, and, and he is now saying he's very uncomfortable, you tap them. But it's not really refractory, right? Refractory is a very strict diagnosis. And so what they did is they randomized patients to weekly albumin infusions. I think it was 40 grams every time for, you know, a year and a half. And the other the control group had nothing, but there was no placebo. And they found not only an less parasites in the patients who got the weekly albumin, but a higher survival. So a better survival in patients who got the albumin. Again, you know, methodologically is not the best study, but it's sort of interesting to know that if you give them Albumin chronically, there is at least there must be a subgroup of patients that really benefit from yeah. doing so.
1: Wow, wow, well, yeah, it seems like albumin, you know, has a, a really profound effect.
2: Albumin, so, see, the thing is, it's it's albumin may have effects that go beyond the expanding the intravascular mm-hmm. volume. Album may bind vasodilators, so in a way it may act as a vasoconstrictor. It buys infl- inflammatory cytokines, so it may be an anti-inflammatory. So all these things in the decompensated patient, the main mechanisms are vasodilatation and inflammation in this it's all driven perhaps by bacteria that are probably translocating from the gut. So albumin, in that sense, would not only, you know, cause vasoconstriction, improve the, uh, expand the intravascular volume and be an anti-inflammatory. So at least theoretically, albumin would be something that in this setting is actually improving survival. We need, you know, we need more confirmation for this, but this is sort of exciting data, yeah.
0: All right. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. That's interesting. Yeah, um, so, so,
2: and then when do you, do, so you what you would do in this patient since he did not respond to whatever dose, you, you, you do a paracentesis, then you, for example, double the dose of diuresin, provided the buencredin and electrolytes are okay, you double it, and then he should be already been discharged, like, days ago. <laughs>
0: well, he's, he's getting there. He's okay, getting okay, there. Okay, okay, okay. We're here, there.
2: All right.
0: So, um, so you
2: tap him so, and he's happy, right?
0: Yes, exactly. That's where we're headed. But I feel like we can't talk about decompensated cirrhosis without mentioning AKI. Okay. so, so oh, the resident so gave him taps the AKI him. Yeah. So <laughs> we, we give him an LVP. He has uh, seven liters taken off. But unfortunately, oh. um, this is near nighttime. A code is called. The resident is discharged. Um, Distracted with a code and doesn't order any albumin at all, and so then you check morning labs the next morning, and his creatinine, which was 0.7 on admission, is now up to 1.6. You get a UA, which is normal, and the microscopy shows a bland sediment. So um, he now has an increased creatinine. When do you start to think about hepatorenal syndrome? What's the difference between type one and type two? Can you comment on those things? Beautiful.
2: Yes. So, like I said, you know, when you don't give albumin after Mm -hmm. (laughs) paracetamol, the patient are set up to develop because they get more vasodilates, so therefore, when they get vasodilates, the kidneys constrict, and, um, and so th- therefore, the patient is more likely to get AKI. So AKI is defined as an increase in credit that's greater than 0.3 from, from the basal, so clearly he has AKI. Mm-hmm. So what is the, the main differential? So the most common cause is prerenal renal Mm-hmm. All right, they're they're dry. You're, give, you're giving too many, too much diuretics. Plus, now you gave gave an LVP without albumin, mm-hmm. right? So you mm-hmm. have he has two stressors right there. So prerenal azotemia is number one, and that counts for the for two thirds or more of, of, of the causes of, of 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 AKI. Second most common is ATN. And the least frequent is hepatorenal syndrome, okay, so when you're thinking about this always think you know your and hepatorenal syndrome in a way is a, is, is a um, diagnosis of exclusion. So the first thing you do you expand the volume because because it since prerenal azotemia is is low volume is a, if the patient is visibly dry like it now you to ask him to stick out his tongue and he can barely take it (laughs) out you know then you give him some saline right if the patient is not visibly dry then you give him albumin right, you expand the volume and then you check check, you may check the it it depends on how this one point is worrying me a little bit this is already stage two so I would probably check it in 12 hours at creatinine and see where we are if it's coming down nicely you're fine you may want to give them another dose of albumin or wait until the next day whatever if it's not coming down then you and definitely give him another dose of vitamin. Yep. Then it, so if the first twenty 24, 48 hours they're not responding to volume expense, you should be getting urinary tests to to because now your differential is between ATN, which we doubt because he did he he wasn't in shock right. during the hemorrhage mm-hmm. or in the infection, right? Mm-hmm. And and you know, he's a setup because he's a patient that had just bled and who just had SVP. Mm-hmm. So you get urinary tests, and you get a FINA. You get a FINA, you get your and you have the nephrologist look at a sediment, all right? Mm-hmm. So basically, at this point, you're saying the patient did not respond to volume expansion. Is it ATN or is it HRS? What should I be doing, mm-hmm. all right? That's where you are. Mm-hmm. So if, if the FINA is incredibly low, like less than 0.1... So every patient with stress a will have a FINA that's less than 1%, all right? So your normal... Book standards yeah. do not Don't work, apply. right? Because they all vary basically. They're all retaining sodium very intensely. So if the phenotype is less than 0.1%, you're likely to have HRS, right? Mm-hmm. Plus the patient should be hypotensive, should have ascites up to there. So the phenotype of the patient someone who who's non-respondent, he's huge, he is hypotensive, and his phenotype is very, very low. On the other hand, if... The FINA is, is 0.5 to 1, you know, it's neither here nor there. And there's albuminuria in a patient that does not have chronic kidney disease, then you have to think of ATN. Oh, okay. Okay. So, and, and have the sediment looked at. This patient, I would, I would suspect that he would respond to volume expansion.
0: Okay, I think he does. Yeah.
2: <laughs> he does?
1: So, yeah, so the patient gets uh, some uh, volume uh, in the form of albumin, and um, his renal function improves the next day, luckily. Beautiful. Exactly, as you predicted. <laughs> so he's connected with the transplant team and uh, is discharged home, uh, does all his follow-ups, he's abstinent from alcohol, and six months later, in the middle of the night, Uh-oh. he's called for a transplant.
2: He stopped drinking, and, and how many months later he is a call?
1: Six months. Oh, six months. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Six months
2: abstinence. You need (laughs) (laughs) at the very least six months. They have, but they have had to. They have to go through a program, Mm -hmm. not just say I didn't drink. You know, they have to go a specific program. The whole thing. This is the ideal Mm world. That would be amazing. Yeah, exactly. Although, okay. Having said that, a patient with alcoholic cirrhosis, and this patient, I'm sure, had an element of alcoholic hepatitis that that led to everything else. If they stop drinking, this patient can go from a decompensated steroid to a totally compensated state. All right? So my point about transplanting, of course, is if in six months he didn't get better, mm-hmm. meaning if in six months he still had anxiety, that he was still Jonathan, he definitely needed the transplant. But most, many of these patients that really stopped drinking in six months, they no longer need a transplant because they have not recompensated. They still have cirrhosis, but now they're in a the compensated stage. Very recently at the VA, I saw a patient that when I was a fellow, I mean, like we're talking a long time ago, you know, he was in one of our trials. He said, hi, Dr. Garcia." And like wow I thought you know the guy when I knew him he had like exactly like you described he had the other thing that, that you have to recognize is that they have also a great sort of color of their skin in addition to the face. Yeah. so he was like that he was like gray he had the big belly he was jaundiced you know 20 plus years ago and now he looked like a normal individual and I said oh my god maybe he didn't have cirrhosis maybe maybe it was just alcoholic hepatitis without cirrhosis so I took him to the fire and sure enough he still had cirrhosis but he was entirely compensated with a normal synthetic function wow Mm -hmm. wow Amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah, we
0: like happy endings here yeah. on the yeah, L- totally. internal messy podcast. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah,
2: No, so, so exactly. <laughs> yeah. So this guy had the that if they really, the main issue is that most of them do not stop drinking. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, um, that comes to the end of our case. Um, you know, I want to thank you so much, uh, Dr. Garcia-Sal, for, for coming on the show. And, I mean, there was just so much knowledge in this episode. Um, I hope that listeners um, get, a, get as much out of it as we did. Thank then, you, guys. Yeah. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank okay. you. Thanks for joining us on The Moonlighters. We'll see you next time.